Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Democrats win the House, MP Tony Clement steps down from the shadow cabinet, and counselors are eyeing an open seat on the Police Services Board. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Midterm elections down in the United States, and as we have been opining over the last couple of days, uh, this has a wide-ranging impact, not just in the United States, but certainly right here in Canada, since we are tied to the hip of the Americans in so many different ways, but even international implications. Joining us to uh, go through the entrails of what was left after uh, the uh, last 24 hours, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Uh, have you had any <laughs> sleep at all yet? Not a lot in the last 24 to 48 hours, but when I did go to sleep, I slept better than I have lately. At least we are over this campaign. At least we're past what was ramping up to be something that I think is pernicious to the entire planet. So much racism, you know, no more subtlety to it. What we wanted to see last night, I think a lot of people around the world, whether they're Democrat or Republican, whether they're partisan or not, was some sort of check, some sort of check on an administration, on an executive branch, on a president that seems to operate outside of the conventions and operate outside of the norm. And people were really relying on this this big, beautiful democracy called the United States to have some sort of lever of that democracy to check Trump. And so it's a mixed bag coming out of last night. Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah, too. But, In other yeah. words, if one of the stated goals was to take back the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, check that box. But it's with an asterisk, isn't it? A huge asterisk. So, uh, a couple thoughts on that. The House without the Senate, so if you don't have the entire legislative branch, you can't do a whole lot. They have different roles, but you kind of they kind of pass things back and forth, right? So the Democrats don't have the unlimited power to, for instance, proceed with impeachment. They can try, they may take a vote in the House, but it, you know, is it ever going to pass the Senate? Of course no, not. What no. we what we have is a Senate that is more Trumpian than Republican now. The people that he campaigned for hard won, and so what you saw last night was really moderates either having retired in the last two years, moderate Republicans, or losing. And so you've got this very strong sense of a Trump-supported Senate. So what can the House really do? Well, they've got subpoena power. Uh, they've got the power to get his tax returns, and that's the first thing Ways and Means is probably going to do on committee. Now they already talked about, talking that about last it night. exactly. Um, they've got the power to be able to make things difficult for some of the high-profile and corrupt, and certainly look corrupt cabinet ministers and people in key positions in the Trump administration. Everybody who works for Trump now should lawyer up in every department. I mean, so they've got the power to subpoena. They've got the power to make things miserable. They've got the power to block any legislative things that go through Congress. However, we have seen a very intelligent man in Trump, and I know a lot of people don't like it when I say that, but if you watch how he understands people and his ability to sell, he really has a a real skill there that I think we underestimate at our own peril. And what he can do with this is say, well, you know what? If the congressional branch is going to slow me down, I'll just use executive powers. I'll just push every single envelope, every guardrail there is. We've seen that already. He'll continue to do that. But also, now he has a foil. Now he can say, well, you didn't like what happened in the last two years, I'm talking 2020 now when he runs, blame it on the Democratic House. Blame, now he's got an actual... He has a foil. He's got an absolute foil. And Nancy Pelosi, and so already this morning we're seeing his strategy roll out. He's basically doubling down and saying, you know, all of you owe me that I campaigned for. And he's also saying any pundit who gets out there and doesn't say that this is a victory for me uh, is fake news. And he's also saying in Democrats, if you want to try to start lawsuits and waste tax dollars, we can do the same thing. We'll come at you for the leaks. So basically what he has done this morning, 
predictably, is unleash greater division and more partisan rhetoric. Uh, And so the next two years are going to be really bumpy. It's great that Democrats made some gains. It's wonderful that there are more women in the House than there ever has been since the start of that of that Congress. And it's it's fantastic historically for women last night. There are two Muslims women who have joined. There are, you know, the first gay mayor, I believe it was. uh, I mean, there's been a lot of really wonderful progressive things that have happened. However, It's not going to change the combative nature of Washington. It's not going to tone down Trump. I think he feels as though closing on a really, really extreme message was validated. And what does that mean for us? For the second time. Yes. Uh, Because even when he ran for the presidency, they were saying, don't do this, do this. And he went and he talked about the politics of fear. And and what the economy in very good shape and and his own handlers saying, this is what you should concentrate on, Mr. President. He threw that advice aside and simply said, no, the politics of hate and division, which is what he did. Uh, with what he did about the migrant workers mm-hmm. that are coming forward. Uh, he doubled down on all of this. And, and in those jurisdictions, Laura, it worked. Absolutely. So you, so if you look at the map of the election last night, I think there are some bigger questions to be asked. One is, of all the people who said 45% said that they approve of his job performance, uh, how many of them even care about any of that, just write it off as just Trump being an entertainer? They don't take it seriously. They like the fact that their 401ks are doing well. They like what they've seen in the stock market. They like the jobs report that came out on Friday. I mean, so are all the people who voted for him okay with his closing argument and with that level of racial divide and incitement? Probably not. They probably just don't care that much. So I don't think that it says to the world America is okay with everything Trump does. But it does say that he still hasn't crossed a line that is a line where people will stand up and where march against line? him. Well, that's the problem, right? Is, is the world looks at this country with, you know, still the most powerful economy and most powerful military <clears throat> and a leader who seems to be even running a cult of personality that just got stronger last night. Uh, they're looking at him going, is there a line? And does he even believe in lines? And I don't think that he because, does. Because we've drawn them over the last two years. We've tried. And and thought, well, that's the one. And uh, yeah. and it hasn't worked. But if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in rules or lines, he just I just don't think that's how he's oriented. He was never restricted in his entire life. And that has led to extreme wealth and power. But it also leads the rest of us to not have any safety net around him. So is it great that... You've now got Democrats with the power to make his life miserable and to go after his close people. And are people going to quit his administration because of the possibly? But it's going to be two more years of tumult. And I don't think the Democrats should waste their time worrying about impeachment just for the headlines. I think what they should do, get the health care wins they promised. They should get the tax returns, protect Mueller's results. And they should be planning their ticket because he has already launched Keep America Great as his campaign slogan. He's already got Kellyanne and crew working on his reelection campaign. The Democrats have to get over this this nice morning celebration quickly uh, and get on with it because you can't underestimate them. All right, let's talk about that idea. And, and I know already last night they're starting to look forward to the next general election in two years. Uh, one of the stories, the subtext of, of last night, yes, there were gains for the, for the Democrats. Yes, they did retake the House. But there were two star candidates mm-hmm. that they were banking on to send a message. I'd say three. Yeah. Well, three. Yeah. For, okay. yeah. And none of them were successful. No. Well, and here's the question, though. <clears throat> were they or weren't they? I mean, Beto O'Rourke to come within a sliver of Ted Cruz in Texas, where you had Houston suburbs and you had the Dallas suburbs going blue. I mean, that's huge. That's huge in Texas. Now, did Beto get the ultimate you know, win? No, but I don't think that anybody thought that that was even possible. So what does that say? Um, and I'll make 
my my larger point after I go through the three, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, we looked at what was going on when the person she was running against was also running the election. There was obvious voter suppression attempts going on, and they did everything they could to stop them. Was Georgia ready to elect her? No. But was there some stuff going on in that race? Absolutely, that fortunately people are looking at very closely now. And then when you look at uh, Gillum in Florida, I mean, he's a progressive. Florida has zero income tax. So he might have been the most amazing guy. But are Floridians really willing to go to a progressive who may, in fact, use income tax for other programs? I don't think that Florida was ready for his policies yet. It doesn't mean that those three didn't make incredible gains in terms of national recognition, in terms of star power. Uh, What will happen with them? We'll wait and see. But I wouldn't be shocked if the ticket in 2020 has one of their names second place on it. Gillum is an interesting scenario of a a guy that wasn't even supposed to win the primary for the Democrats. Right. Uh, the, the mayor of Jacksonville. and uh, But when you look at the map, uh, not just last night, but the map traditionally of Florida, it's red with a mm-hmm. couple of blue splotches, which are high population areas, That's which right. is where he got his votes. So, I mean, the the, the, the deck was stacked against him just to, right off the get-go. Yeah. But, but he, this is a guy that came within a couple of percentage points of actually winning this Well, thing. isn't it always Briar County that goes Democrat and the panhandle yeah. goes? I mean, Florida is, is the ultimate... <laughs> bellwether for an election. It's, it seems to me it'd be, it's a state we all speak the most about, right back to the hanging Chad days, right? Yep. Uh, so Florida elections are complex. For him to make the gains that he did, and especially when you had the president actively, actively working for with the person who he was running against, who was really a, a Trump mini-me. And so Trump now has some really strong supporters getting into positions of power, and that'll be interesting. But I think that Gillum went from essentially being unknown to becoming a national a national um, view of what the future could look like. Because when he was under pressure, I mean, when his Republican challenger said, you know, we don't want to monkey this up, Florida, that was seen as a racial whistle. And he could have handled it a whole bunch of ways. But what he said was, I'm not saying my colleague is a racist or my competitor. I'm saying that the racists think that he is. And This is what's really important, I think, for all of us to understand, is that if what you're saying, what you're spewing on the radio, TV, social media, whatever, is liked by people who openly espouse those views, there's a problem there. There's a problem with what you're saying. And we have to be very cautious of that. So I think this... Like good people on both sides. Right, exactly. False equivalencies, right? Stripping away what truth is, eroding what facts are. I mean, we are going to see a tremendous amount of distortion coming out of the White House now because they feel emboldened on their strategy of distortion. And so I think people have to buckle up for that. Now, can the Democrats run some interference and and get some headlines and it's not going to be totally just the Republican message? Yes, great. Uh, But they better be building for 2020 and fast. To that point, they need a hero. They need somebody to rally around. And and those two guys that they were Mm -hmm. looking at last night, O'Rourke and Gillum, were Mm -hmm. two of the people that were potential. They weren't successful. Now, I'm not suggesting they're politically dead now. As a matter of right. fact, quite the opposite, I think. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is they've got about a year now to find somebody, and it's not going to be Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be Joe Biden. I'm not so sure that they want to bring Joe back. But, I mean, there's well, not, you, not nobody running to the front of the pack right now. So there are people who are suggesting that the only way to really win is to run someone who's beloved, who's white and male, right, because of the obvious uh, racial beliefs that it still exists in the United States that we've seen some of it validated last night. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if it's a Biden Beto ticket or, you know, if you or if, if Gillum or Beto are, are the second person on a ticket of that nature. Obviously, having a woman on the ticket, a Warren or or Camilla Harris, there are some stars that are emerging. The the challenge, uh, you know, Sully Sullivan, a former Republican, wouldn't that be great? Or, or an independent challenge from Bloomberg or from Romney, potentially, although he's a senator now. I mean, I think the independent 
track might also be open. But what matters is that the person who runs against Trump has to understand how to out-communicate him. And the reason why I keep going back to Gillum is because he didn't seem to make a mistake in when he was on a frontal attack from Trump. Other people can learn from how he handled it. Beto O'Rourke had a kind of a Kennedy-esque, higher elevated kind of vibe about him. Uh, and he can do stuff with that. But at the end of the day, if you put someone beloved and someone who's got some real reach and, and some communication chops, there's potential. My point is just this. I don't want the Democrats to get so whipped up in this kind of impeachment fever that can go nowhere without the Senate when they should just be focusing on building that ticket. I mean, if I were in their war room right now, I'd be like, they're saying keep America great. What are we saying? Let's start saying it now and let's figure out who we're backing. I mean, they've got it. They can't have an, an internecine war between the extreme, you know, left of the party and the moderates. They have to pick their people and start working it fast. And they have to pick their battles. Yeah. And, and the point is, I mean, I realize that there's a process and the process is ugly and we're going to see all their all their debates for their ticket on the ticket and all the rest of it. Um, but they have to pick their battles because Trump moves so quickly and does so many things. Some of them are good that you cannot just, you know, kind of lock in and dig in. He's already on to 60 other things. So they've got to look at it really strategically. I'm sure that they will. I think they learned some important lessons. You've got people like Ortega coming in from New York. She's she's no fool. You know, there are some high-powered people entering into that house that uh, I think are going to change how Nancy Pelosi does business, if not change her as leader. Simply, though, as a strategist, uh, if you're not thinking 2020 after last night and starting to come up with a strategy, then he's already ahead. This, uh, as, as we mentioned, got a couple of minutes left here, has emboldened the White House, obviously, mm-hmm. because the, the Trump strategy has worked once again. Yes. Uh, with that in mind, uh, do people like uh, like Jeff Sessions and others start packing up their desks? I mean, yeah, I think Sessions. I, th- will be I think I think there's a few people going to get yeah. blown out of that uh, administration. Yeah. I think Sessions will be probably the first to go. I think Mattis may hang on just because he is Mad Dog Mattis the Patriot. No matter what Trump calls him, I think he wants. I think some of the people around like, he likes generals. Well, I think Kelly and Mattis understand that you know when Trump was suggesting just off the cuff or or deliberately that if there's a rock thrown by one of these poor tired migrants looking for asylum that the U.S. military can use weapons, right? That's that's not proportional response. That's not what the U.S. military is based on. And so I think that some of the generals hang around because they need to keep some checks on him directly. But at the end of the day, the mixed bag, this is good morning for the Democrats. They proved in a gerrymandered map that they could still get the popular vote. They even got popular vote in the Senate, although not the, the map wasn't theirs, and we knew that. But they cannot just rest on their laurels or take too big of a victory lap, because if they really want to change America and get some of these democratic norms back in place, they're not Obama. They don't have that, that fuel right now. And they may find the beloved person, but they have got to handle Trump better than they have the last two years. Just to that point in the 30 seconds that we have left. Uh, the gubernatorial wins will go a long way towards doing that. Huge. I mean, there was there was a way disproportion of government of governors that were Republicans, and that n- had to balance out. But there were a lot of really strong Democrats that won some key state houses in states that were previously red. So the map is changing. The Democrats last night made moves in the Midwest. The three states that gave Trump the Electoral College voted in a lot of blue candidates last yep. night. So I, I think that some of the, the, the Trump magic has gone away if they can reclaim the Midwest. And that's going to be key for the Democrats. They 
have to be Biden's party. They can't just be the party of the East and West Coast. They have to be Central America if they're going to have a chance. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. Thanks after a long night uh, for popping in today. Great to see you. <laughs> My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Conservative member of Parliament Tony Clement has quit the shadow cabinet uh, after revealing that he has shared explicit sexual images and a video of himself to somebody who says is now extorting him. Uh, this, uh, to suggest, is a political bombshell, I think, is a massive understatement. Joining us to talk about this is David Aiken, chief political correspondent with Global News. David, thank you for the time today on a very busy morning. I, this, is, this is a shocker. Uh, no kidding. So this this dropped on the world yesterday as everybody's watching the midterms. Anybody who's a political geek, we're all busy watching what's going on in uh, you know Nevada, what's yep. going on in Florida. And then uh, Clement releases this statement last night about 7.30, um, telling everyone that he sent these sexually explicit videos and images to what he thought was a um, consenting female friend. Well, that consenting female friend turns out to be a person or party, and that's important to point out, that's his phrase, person or party that is trying to extort him. Global News has learned that this person or party wanted 50,000 euros, not Canadian dollars, but euros, uh, from Tony to make this go away. And 50,000 euros, it's about 75, 80,000 Canadian dollars. So it's a lot of money uh, for anybody, including a, a former cabinet minister. Clement then took this to the RCMP, and away we go. Um, he has not resigned as a member of the caucus, and I should point out, Bill, like literally as we're speaking, that caucus has just started its regular weekly closed-door caucus meeting here on Parliament Hill. Uh, this is certainly going to come up. Our colleagues are outside the room. No sign of Clement at the meeting, but um, there will be questions about his status as a caucus member. But what sort of makes his story a little more unique is that Clement was also a member of a special and relatively new all-party National Security Oversight Committee. Mm -hmm. So this particular committee, uh, there's only a couple of conservatives on it, he was one, would have had top secret operational details about the RCMP, CSIS, the CSE, and so on. So the identity of this alleged extortionist, you know, it's more than just somebody, per it could be more than just somebody looking for a buck. Uh, we will very much want to know, was this an agent of a foreign government looking for leverage on a Canadian member of parliament with access to top secret information. It's happened before, Bill. You may remember several years ago, Bob Deckard, a conservative MP from Mississauga, he was in the Harper government, he was the parliamentary secretary to the foreign affairs minister, and it came to light that he was having, he was a married man, that he was having some sort of liaison, some sort of flirtation with a journalist from the Chinese state uh, news agency, Xinhua. I think it's widely known in the national security community, quote-unquote journalists from Xinhua are quite certainly agents of the Chinese state. They're spies. And this was a woman, a journalist, having a some sort of liaison with a Canadian parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. It was a big deal at the time. It was tremendously embarrassing for Bob Deckard, you can appreciate. The Chinese journalist in question, once this came to light, once her cover was blown, was whisked back to China. So as I say, this has happened before. It's happened in other democracies before, where foreign governments, no, there's a lot of levers to sort of get some leverage on a uh, on a, a politician. Uh, they got a gambling habit. Uh, they got a drug habit. They drink too much. 
or they, uh, you know, the, they have affairs of the heart, which you're not supposed to have. Clement was a teetotaler. Many people, he's, you know, widely known in the conservative party circles. He's a cabinet minister, both at Queen's Park and here. Mm-hmm. Teetotaler, never, never touches a drink, doesn't do drugs. I remember asking him the morning that, uh, cannabis got legalized and I said, you're going to do anything here, Tony? And he says, no, but the, you know, uh, not going to violate uh, his body is his temple. One of those sorts of folks. Um, and yet he's he's clearly shown tremendous bad judgment. He's admitted that as himself. Uh, his leader, Andrew Scheer, says uh, he's tremendously disappointed. Um, but as I say, this national security issue sort of hovers over all of this. It makes it more than, you know, just another run-of-the-mill politician caught in a sexting scandal. Sort and, of story. and, David, that was the first thing that I thought of when this story came to light yesterday. And, and you're right. There's a, a long, long history of this in, in other democracies. The, the Perfumo scandal in the U.K. many years ago. Gerda Munsinger mm-hmm. here not too many years ago. Uh, back in the 1960s, and on and on it goes. But, but and, and as you mentioned, Tony Clement is not a spring chicken. He's been around both politically, fed, provincially, and federally. Uh, would they not be attuned to the idea that, look, it, don't leave yourself open to something like this? You'd have to assume. You're right. And not only that, but Clement is also a, um, you know, he's a social media sophisticate. And yeah. by that I mean he has... He was one of the politicians to early and often pick up on how effective social media can be to for communication, to find fundraisers, for, to find volunteers. He had 11,000, or still has, 11,000 Instagram followers. And, you know, to fo- folks not on Instagram, that's a lot. That's a ton. He has 77,000 followers on Twitter, uh, 3,500 Facebook followers. So he's got a sizable audience on uh, on social media. And one of the things as well that surfaced last night after this announcement was made, after Clement said, I've, I've sent sexually suggestive videos and, te- and, and images, is a lot of women started responding on Twitter. Women, many of them sort of of a college age generation, many of them looked remarkably similar, you know, short brunette hairstyles, et cetera, et cetera. And they would say, they were saying, I liked Tony, and when I liked him, he immediately started going through my Instagram feed and was liking all sorts of pictures of me. And these women saying, of course, after the fact, that they found this a bit creepy. Tony Clement, is, I think I may have mentioned, he's 57 years old, uh, married, three kids, um, and he was quite active in liking something. There's nothing, I guess, wrong with that on its own. It's being friendly. But some of these women are saying they found it a bit odd. And the reason we're focusing on his social media activity, again, is because we're curious about the identity of this alleged extortionist. The RCMP are investigating. They've been on the case, I understand, for a couple of days now. And uh, they're not saying anything beyond confirming there's an investigation. But we're now poking around on well who was tony clement hanging around with online it it, it was often um female attractive female women let's put it that way that tony clement was uh uh engaging with uh, online Eleven thousand instagram followers that's a lot of people david do you find a parallel here between this and what happened with patrick brown some months ago uh where you know the uh, late evening uh, uh, you know uh revelation uh, now, we found out after the fact, of course, that Brown did that basically because they were ready to make it public anyway. And you, you wonder if he was pushed into this yesterday. I, I, it's hard to say. I, I think there's some very significant differences between the, the lifestyle of Patrick Brown, oh, certainly, certainly while he was yeah. here in Ottawa. I mean, uh, he was single for one thing and, and made no bones about the fact that he, he enjoyed uh, seeing different women uh, socially, shall we say. I think that's the polite way to say it, Bill, isn't it? Um, I think so. so he that was Patrick Brown. Tony Clement, on the other hand, as you say, came across as, uh, 
you know, a bit of a nerd in a in a in a happy-go-lucky kind of way. Certainly, he was a political nerd. I mean, politics was his life. Uh, represented a Brampton riding while in the uh, provincial legislature. Now represents Perry Sound Muskoka in our uh, federal legislature. He's run for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada the two times that that job was open. He finished second to Stephen Harper back in '04 or '03 or whatever, and he he ran against Sheer. He would withdraw and ended up supporting Bernier. Um, as I mentioned. Uh, Lifetime teetotaler, uh, not, not into that aspect. Enjoyed rock and roll. I mean, if there was, uh, you know, something you sort of looked at him and said, well, that's kind of cool. He played guitar, played it not badly, and uh, very much enjoyed classic rock. Again, if you go through his Facebook account or his Instagram account, you can see lots of pictures of him with a guitar in his hand rocking out. That was uh, what Tony was known for uh, on the Hill. Certainly, he was a you know no apologies conservative. He was you know say on the on the right side of the uh, the moderate right. Uh, but I'm not sure that there was any indication uh, ahead of this that he was a, sort of a man about town in the way, say, Patrick Brown was. And, and this is the other thing that's weird. There's been, you know, the thing about the Brown case or other cases where MPs here in Ottawa have been involved in some inappropriate sexual behavior, it was a situation where, let's say, Brown, it was Brown, the MP, and a staff member, an employee, somebody who was looking for a job. In other words, there was that power imbalance and the suggestion then that the male politician in this case was abusing their position of authority, was yeah. being a predator. And in this case, Comet is saying, I I'm a victim. I'm a victim of an extortion attempt. And what I did show terrible judgment, sure, but this was what I thought was a consenting adult female and we will still have to test that hypothesis, but this is he saying it's a consenting adult, and now I'm a victim. So that makes this a, a, a much different uh, and perhaps more serious situation than some of the other things we've been involved. Oh, and, and I don't doubt that. I mean, the fact that the RCMP are investigating this, and I'm, I'm, and you guys, David, in Ottawa, are out of our Bureau for Global. I mean, you're bang on with this. I mean. Uh, th this committee that he sat on, for those that don't know, as you mentioned, it's relatively new. But I mean, these guys have access to CSIS information, RCMP information, mm -hmm. and maybe, and and of course, and by and by extension, those agencies have uh, information from CIA, from other agencies, from the, the Five Eyes. I mean, this is this is pretty serious stuff. I mean, if there's a security breach here, this is significant. Uh, that's right, and and so Tony would have carried, or still carries, the designation PC, and that stands for Privy Counselor. And so whenever you're a, mem a member of the federal cabinet, you become, you know, Tony Clement PC or member of cabinet PC. And that PC designation essentially says uh, we trust you with the nation's secrets. You're you you're sitting around the cabinet table where the most sensitive information about our country is discussed and as a result you're certainly made aware of how other governments around the world will try to learn what you're up to and exploit information for commercial gain or security gain uh, you know this is this that's be adults about this this is the way governments work they want to know what other governments are doing and uh, people who sit at the cabinet table are the people to find out about this so um to that extent, yes, it's, it raises some additional concerns. This is something we're going to ask Andrew Scheer about. This is something, to be honest, if there's questions we're going to have for the government, for, for the Trudeau government, they're not responsible, certainly, for Tony Clement's behavior, but they are responsible for the security of government information. And I suspect we would want to know from 
it's the Prime Minister's committee from the Prime Minister. Uh, are there concerns? Should Canadians have any national security concerns? Should our Canadians' allies have any national security concerns as a result of this investigation or this individual who seems to have been compromised? So many questions and not enough answers on this yet. What about Clement's future here, then? You mentioned that he stepped down from his, his, his duties. Uh, he's still a member of the caucus right now. Uh, it's not lost mm-hmm. on Andrew Scheer, I'm thinking at this point, David, that there's an election less than a year away from now. He doesn't need this kind of aggravation. He absolutely doesn't need this kind of aggravation. In the short term, uh, as you've probably been following along, Bill, that the conservatives have been hammering the liberals on the Statistics Canada story that we broke about a week ago. You know, this idea that StatsCan wants to harvest the personal financial yeah. information of Canadians. Conservatives have been really just going to town on this seven days in a row. They've let off question period with this particular topic. I, I suspect the starch is going to come out of those attacks a little bit uh, today. We'll see uh, when QP gets underway at 2.15, uh, whether or not it does. So that's the short-term implication. Longer term, uh, yes, I, I, you know, I, we'll see. This is a test of Andrew Scheer's leadership. We saw what Justin Trudeau did when he had situations where a member of his caucus, there was a suggestion that there was inappropriate behavior. Uh, he kicked him out right away. Uh, again, circumstances are different. I'm thinking back here to Massimo Pacetti and Scott Andrews yeah. when Trudeau was the opposition th- leader of the third party, and there was uh, suggestions that they had been acted inappropriately towards other female MPs. He, he didn't waste two seconds, and he kicked them out. Uh, he's done the same with uh, a cabinet minister, uh, Hunter Tutu. Uh, Kent Hare, see you later, you're on the sidelines. Darshan Kang from Calgary. So he's had, Trudeau's had a lot of situations where he's had to remove people. Of course, Trudeau's had a situation of his own where there was, remember that situation where he was accused or, mm-hmm. the, or the news of his alleged groping of a woman, you know, 17 years ago came to light. You know, we can argue about how he handled that. So that's been a leadership issue. So how, what does Shear do here? Does he say to Clement, well, there's different circumstances. He's a victim. He's not the aggressor. We'll allow this to work itself out. I'm not sure. Um, Perry Sound Muskoka, the riding that Tony is in, it has been liberal before. It was liberal, I'm thinking, around 2000, 2000. The last time Kretchen won, it was uh, uh, it was a liberal riding, but it's since been reliably conservative. Uh, provincially, it's conservative. I don't think that would be one of the writings I would say would be at risk if uh, Clement did not run or decided to retire. But certainly for his political future, it's a bit, it's obviously it's much dimmer because he has shown that when it comes to uh, a position of trust, a position where you're going to be entrusted with sensitive security or commercial information, uh, this is a big black mark on his record uh, of his ability to be trusted. As he goes forward on this, and I'm sure there'll be other explanations and more statements uh, forthcoming on this, David, is the I'm a victim uh, scenario going to fly here? I mean, you know, this this is this reeks of, of Anthony Weiner all over again, and, and yet, you know, he's, he seems to say, well, wait a second, don't, I, I, I acted poorly, but, you know, it, don't blame me. Blame these people that are trying to extort me. It, it, it will require some uh, Tony Clement to sit down in front of some reporters who are ready to ask some tough questions, and they would include, was this the one and only time you ever sent pictures? We know the pathology of, as you mentioned, Wiener, but anybody else, we know the pathology tends to be, it's not just one time. Mm-hmm. If it is for Tony, we'd like to hear from him. This is the one and only time, and it was just a really unfortunate piece of bad luck. I guess that's the first question. And then we'll want to know a lot more about the, again, the, the person who was alleged to be the extortionist here. Uh, what were they up to? Uh, those, I think, are 
the two fundamental questions before Tony Clement is going to be able to move in any substantial way beyond this. Uh, he's going to have to, I think, be a little more transparent about his online activities uh, with his voters. Um, I'm sure he's already done so privately with his family. I mean, in his statement last night, he noted uh, he's caused his family needless pain and humiliation. I think that's the, the least of it. I mean, just a, a couple of days ago, he was on social media with his wife. His wife's name is Lynn Spaulding. She's, she's got a, uh, a book out. Uh, she's just she's an author, and I'm sure she was looking forward to the fall promoting this book. Um, and obviously, this situation with her husband has uh, put a bit of a damper on that. I know this is way down the list, given some of the, the important scenarios that you already talked about here. But from the political standpoint, I mean, this is this has been a rough week. I mean, in the early part of the week, Doug Ford loses one of his trusted advisors, Jim Wilson, who mm-hmm. he was counting on an awful lot. And, who and would now, have been Tony Clement's colleague at Queen's Park a long, long time ago? Oh, exactly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because Tony started off, of course, in the Mike Harris government. Uh, and mm-hmm. and and uh, now, of course, you've got Andrew uh, Shear losing again a very trusted member. I mean, he was the justice critic. That's a pretty important portfolio. Uh, it is an important portfolio. And Clement was a pretty, as I say, he's a seasoned MP, and he could be a very effective critic. Um, uh, again, because he's been a minister, he's been at the cabinet table. Uh, his political counsel is one I think that would be you'd want to have on your side because of his connections to the Ontario Party. Shear, of course, is. Uh, um, he's a Western Canadian MP. Um, it's great. And Ontario is, you know, where the Conservatives are ascendant right now with the whole Ford, uh, Ford Nation thing. So you'd want to have strong Ontario lieutenants, uh, advisors, council, and Shear is going to have to lose that right now in Tony Clement. Um, so yes, it's 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 trouble that certainly is going to distract from what Shear wanted to do, which was talk about, you know, Justin Trudeau and the carbon tax, Justin Trudeau and Statscan. And um, and now certainly people may be going, well, what about some of these conservative members of the provincial legislature and the federal legislature? Stuff, stuff no politician wants to talk about. Well, David, as you mentioned, it's caucus day in Ottawa and, of course, question period coming up later on this afternoon. Uh, hopefully we can get some more answers on this, and we'll be watching for your uh, reporting on it on Global National later on tonight. Thanks so much for this, Dave. Great. Thanks, Bill. Have a great morning. You too. David Aiken, of course, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, following the uh, latest on the Tony Clement series. And uh, as he mentioned, the uh, Conservatives are caucusing right now up on Parliament Hill, so I'm sure we'll get some answers on that later on today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had our municipal election, of course, back in October. Uh, the new council has yet to be sworn in, but uh, the horse trading as to who's going to sit on what committee has already started. Uh, that goes on behind the scenes, and a lot of the stuff is predetermined by the time they actually sit down and, and strike the committees. Uh, one of them, and one of the most important ones, of course, is the Police Service Board. And uh, you may also know them as the much maligned Police Services Board because they've taken a lot of heat for a variety of things over the last number of years. So with this time between sessions of council, is it time to hit the reset button? Some suggest time to clean house. I want to bring John Best into the conversation. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer as he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. John, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Good morning. Good. We, uh, you have used a lot of ink, and we've used a lot of airtime over the last number of years talking about the Police Services Board, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. Well, you know, it's uh, it, it, there does appear to be a governance issue there, and, and to be honest, I, I'm not sure that you solve the problem by changing uh, the people necessarily involved, um, it seems to me that there's uh, just a around police service boards generally uh, just a, kind of a weak governance process. And, and by that I mean people that get on the police services board, certainly here in Hamilton, 
uh, regardless of whether they're counselors or whether they're citizen members, what appears to an outsider to be happening is that they just get totally co-opted by the system and they instead of seeing their role as kind of a watchdog on behalf of the public they seem to sort of morph into being kind of a focus group for the chief or the administration of the day and, and you know sort of enablers of how can we help you kind of thing and of course that's a that is a, a certainly a positive governance structure and that's part of the role of a board but uh, the scrutiny piece just seems to uh, not happen at all. Why does it always seem to fall into two different camps, John? As you mentioned, and and I, these may be unfair comparisons, but the, they're the ones I hear an awful lot of the time every time we have these discussions on the program, is some some people's of the board, and I won't get into names because you, you're right, we're going back a couple of generations, not just this past term of council. Right. Some people are characterized as lapdogs for the police, and others are protagonists that are going to disagree with everything that the police say. And it doesn't, yeah. there doesn't seem to be any middle ground, Well, uh, at least in some people's mind. You know, I, I mean, if you're a member of council and you're sitting on the police board, uh, I think if you're doing your duty as, as a member of council, your, your number one priority should be safeguarding the public's interest, and that means being, um, you know, uh, scrutinizing budgets. But, you know, I would argue whether you're, what, and, and so I think that's where the divide comes. I think the citizen members tend to be more, uh, not, and I don't want to get into personalities here or individuals, because as you say, we've been seeing this for decades, but I think the citizen people tend to be more, you know, see themselves as helpful and uh, uh, encouraging, and, and, uh, and, and perhaps they don't have the... Uh, the you know just the fiscal background to really take a look at a police budget and 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 break it down uh council members at least are confronted with major budget decisions every year so the, they do develop some sense of uh how to um, how to look at a, a a set of financials and and they have the same challenges uh, by the way various variations on the same themes anyway uh when it comes to budget there are some things that police service boards have to do i mean they're required by law to do not like the city has uh, essential services that have to be included in the budget and you can't do a whole lot about that uh so it's a pretty steep learning curve even if you're a citizen member to come onto that board there, it is but you know there's there's things they could do that that could make it better i i know there's this absolute taboo about anybody on the police services board getting involved in operational matters and and I'm not, uh, and I certainly have no quarrel with that. I mean, I don't think uh, citizens should be determining uh, how how officers are deployed or uh, you know what kind of strategies are used to to fight crime. But I, I think that gets interpreted too broadly, especially around the budget. Um, I, I really think this this particular police services board um, really dropped the ball on the financing of the uh, forensic building. Um, you know, they're, they're really a, a very questionable uh, practice there. They, they, they racked up big surpluses uh, and told council uh, and told, I guess, their own members that these are, you know, it's a typical police budget. It's always bare bones. We never have enough. But uh, in, in fact, there was a, two years ago, there was a $3 million surplus that enabled them to partly finance the building. So, you know, if you're starting to get padded budgets and people around the table aren't really paying attention, uh, you know, that, that to me is, uh, is a sign that we, we need more scrutiny. 
How do you do that, though? And and, and let's just remind our, our listeners here about how the, the board is comprised. Uh, and and the, Because there are political appointees, but some of them are provincial. One of them is municipal. And then, of course, there are going to be two members of Hamilton City Council. Well, three, because the mayor is a, a, uh, an ex-official member of every board, of course, and he is a, a voting member of the Police Services Board. So there will be two city councillors. Uh, and t- and one citizen member. That's that's the control that city council can 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 exist or can exact onto the police services board. Well, they can. But if you if you take a look at our current uh, police services board, uh, you know the yes, council could control things because they do have a, a a majority. But then you have councilors who disagree among themselves. Uh, you know, we had a situation uh, three you know two or three years ago where. It appeared that uh, Terry Whitehead uh, was a, a real hardliner on budget, and he clashed with the the former chief. But he was not even supported by his fellow council members who were on the board. So, uh, yeah, numerically, it's possible for council to have an absolute control over the over the board. But we don't see it when you get down to individual personalities involved. So, is is it the is it the type of people that, that are being selected for this board? I mean, is there a certain sort of a type of individual that you need uh, to be able to to multitask, which is essentially what I think we're describing with this board? Well, I I just think that um, you know whether it's city council or whether it's the police board or whether it's uh, you know any of these other boards and commissions, uh, the, the the biggest gap I see uh, over the last three or four years is just financial literacy. Uh, the you know we I, I think that's what you need. It's not so much what kind of a personality is involved. It's uh, you know their ability to look at a at a at a set of financials and and be able to see uh, where where there may be some you know some uh, some fat or some surplus. Just just to put it into context, Bill, uh, since 2008, so we're you know 10 years. Uh, the in 2008, the police had. Uh, various surplus, uh, what they call reserve accounts. These are cash reserves uh, of around 12 million, 12 and a half million. Now they're up to 24 million. So they have things like uh, they got a health and dental reserve that's got 6.2 million in it. Um, you know, that's a and and there's never any evidence. The idea of a reserve is you put money in a reserve and then. Um, you know, as uh, unusual circumstances arise, you sometimes draw down the reserve. Uh, you know, if you have a year where there's been an unusual amount of, of, of call on the system. Uh, but these reserves just continue to grow. They never seem to get tapped. So, like, they got a, six, a sick leave reserve of uh, $6.2 million, uh, and yet they seem to be able to handle any sick time within their existing budget without having to draw down the reserve. So if you're never tapping the reserve, I mean, this is getting very technical, I'm sorry, but bottom line is you put money away for a rainy day and the rainy day never comes, uh, then maybe some of that money could be used for other purposes. Well, who's going to uh, who's going to have uh, start that conversation? Uh, because there is, and and I've been a big supporter of police uh, you know, when I was on council, certainly a, as a broadcaster, as a citizen, obviously, because I think they sure. do a wonderful job here. But boy, uh, you know, any politician that would rue the day that says, "I think we should cut back on the police budget. I think we should cut back on staffing," because there's going to be a hue and cry, not just from the police, but from the public that said, "No, no, 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 no. We need that." Well, you don't have to cut back on staffing. Just cut back on these. Re- just use some of these reserves for a while and give the taxpayer a break. 
I mean, th- this is the this is the stuff that our friend uh, Shaker, Shanda Shaker, has been getting into trouble with. Uh, you you spent some time this week discussing uh, his uh, the fact that his emails are being blocked at City Hall, and and uh, a lot of that problem centers around him trying to get information, uh, particularly about these police budgets, and he's he's struggled uh, to get information, but he he's managed to to put a lot of this stuff together and people just don't want to know about this they you know they just would rather not raise the issue and it's unfortunate you know that we have to rely on a unpaid citizen uh to do all this legwork and 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 then to have a uh, not really go anywhere well is it uh, beholden then to the city councilors to, to take a little more time when they select who the citizen member is going to be for that board Yes, and it also, uh, the other thing is, uh, the, the other pattern that you would be very familiar with from your time on council is that when the police services budget is ultimately presented to council, generally speaking, there's zero scrutiny at that point. It's assumed that their own members have uh, safeguarded the taxpayer's interest. And uh, I think once, uh, again, referring to uh, Terry Whitehead when he tried to get aggressive uh, a little bit on budgeting, uh, there's hardly ever any kind of line-by-line discussion or anything, uh, really. Once it gets past the police services board, um, city council basically hits it with a rubber stamp. Well, and it began, one of the reasons for that, obviously, is because that line that you just talked about, John, about, you know, uh, you can't get into operational issues. And, yeah. and what we've heard a lot of the time when city councilors uh, and will, will question some of these things and say, well, are you sure about this? Uh, they're cautioned, hey, you know, you can't tell us that where to deploy offices. You can't, and we can't in confidence talk about some of the programs that we've got right now because we don't want the bad guys to know about it. And those are both very legitimate reasons. But, you know, under that cloak of, of that's as far as you're going to be able to go on that one, it, it leaves a lot of people with a lot of questions. It, it certainly does. And, and the other thing that just in terms of public confidence here, I, I really have a problem uh, watching uh, particularly council members, but any member of that police services board, uh, walking around with these blazers on with police crests on them. You're supposed to be there as, as a civilian oversight and I think when you walk around, uh, you know, sort of sporting the the crest of the organization that you're supposed to be overseeing, it it doesn't do a lot for to tell the public that you're there on their behalf. It it really looks like you've joined the club, and, and it's, it's it's an optical thing. But I think it should be discontinued. And I think they get ID cards and God knows what. You know, you recall a situation way back where uh, it appeared that members were actually given something that looked like a badge and i can remember uh, an incident where where a counselor was pulled over and flashed something that you know appeared to convey the sense that they were somehow connected with the police and i just think you got to do away with all of that nonsense it's uh, it's an embarrassment really to anybody that cares about governance well, speaking of governance, uh, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, relieve any of the pressure on city council because this is a Hamilton Police Services Board, and they do have oversight here. But uh, there has been some talk uh, at the provincial level, which of course oversees the Police Act, uh, that maybe it's time for some revisions. I mean, some of the things that go on here are really because the boards are handcuffed and city council is handcuffed by what I think is some rather antiquated regulations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think we have to uh, really sort out what we mean by operational issues. And uh, I certainly would, last thing I'd want to see is 
you know, there's there's investigative work. There's uh, uh, you know, there's protective work that that clearly should not be uh, aired out in 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 public meetings. It requires discretion and confidentiality. But the overall budget, I I think um, I think councillors are entitled to be very very aggressive when it comes to scrutinizing those numbers. And uh, you know, I just don't think it's happening. And I I, I think there's a misconception uh, about uh, their power. And and there are some actual uh, you know regulations within the Police Services Act that probably need to be looked at. Um, I, I do know this, that with all the squabbling that's been going on with that police services board, that if I was a member of the Ontario Civilian Police Commission and I saw a Hamilton phone number on call display, I think I'd leave the room. Uh, there's just been way too much uh, running to daddy with uh, these various problems that probably should have been sorted out a, at a personal level. Well, I mean, the thing that we haven't talked about, we're almost out of time here, is, is when it comes to the citizen appointees, as I say, some by the province, one by the city, uh, they've got to get away, and I know this is virtually impossible to do, I guess, in reality, get away from the patronage appointments and look for people that are actually qualified to do it. Well, that, that would and, be helpful. And by the way, and, that's not to suggest there haven't been some great people on the board, because there have been some uh, from those citizen appointees. But let's face it, John, there have been some placeholders there, too. Yes, uh, for sure, and uh, you know, I, I think the province, uh, you know, whether whatever the government of the day is, I, I think that's a definitely a role they could uh, they could play. I mean, when you get right down to it, council really only has one citizen appointee, but the province has three, and uh, I, I would like to see, uh, you know, when you talk to people that understand uh, board governance, uh, one of the things that you really need to look for are are skill sets. And uh, can we not find uh, somebody who's friendly to the Tories that also happens to be an accountant? I mean, I, I think that would be, you know, I, patronage is patronage. It'll be with us forever. But if you're going to appoint somebody because of their political stripe, how about looking at their qualifications? Because chances are you can get both. Well, I'm not so sure that there are any accountants available. I think Doug Ford's got most of them digging into Kathleen Wynne's background. But uh, maybe at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. John, thanks as you're always. Right. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.